This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The name of this episode is All Things Social Activism, Sports and Activism, How the Two Intersect. But I'll just say this right off the top. We don't know all things social activism and sports activism. We just have our own experiences that we have learned from and tried to, to learn from and can share those with you. And in, in this episode, I would encourage you guys, if you're watching it on YouTube right now, to do the same thing. Take the opportunity to share comments down below that you feel like need to be heard or could be shared because we all have unique perspectives. We've all lived unique lives and have uh, have opinions and things we've learned from what's happened over the past years of our lives. So I'd like to introduce my co-host once again. We got Corey Robinson there in San Antonio, Jack Collinsworth as well with their own unique experiences. And Corey, let's just let's just start with you because you know we've all grown up, you know, either in sports, rooting for sports. Corey, your father, David, one of the greatest NBA players of of all time. So your experience is going to be totally unique from everyone else's experience. Just speak to uh, kind of your thoughts in this moment, which seems to be at a crossroads, not just in sports and activism, but uh, in, in America itself. You know, I'm in, I got to say, it's been very interesting for me just because um, I've been so I've been forced to reconnect with my own family history and just ask my parents and grandparents, you know, what was it like for them growing up? And you think that these things have happened hundreds of years ago. You see a photo on Instagram, colored entrance, right? And I call my grandparents and my grandpa was like, no, like when I was a kid, that's what happened. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, this isn't even that far removed. You know, my grandpa was there during like he was growing up in the era of the Little Rock Nine in Arkansas. Uh, that's the first segregation uh, desegregation of schools in Arkansas. He was on the ground. So that's what's been so interesting to me is that like my family has lived this history. So uh, that's been shocking. But then also just looking at how sports can play a role it's been beautiful to see just the history of sports and activism hand in hand. And, and I think of my experience in South Africa when I got to go on the ground and see how rugby played such an important role um, in ending apartheid, particularly because um, when I was there, I got to talk to Chester Williams, who was like the Jackie Robinson of South Africa. And, and you know, that's a bad analogy, but he back in the day, um, black players just used to fill quotas on rugby teams. Right. They weren't even assessed for skill. They're just like, we just need a black guy. And Chester played a key role in the, in the World Cup team, and that helped bridge the gap between black man being uh, soccer being the black man sport and rugby being the white man sport. Now it was everyone's sport, and it was the country's sport. And that's what my hope is moving forward: is we can see sport as the great unifier. Jack, what what about you? What what do you see as is your role uh, in, in all this? Because it can be it can be so difficult for Americans who feel like this is not about them. The story is not about them. It's about amplifying the voices of those who are unheard at this moment. So, so Jack, obviously your, your father played in the NFL. You've been around sports your whole life. You're one of the best up and coming sports broadcasters out there right now. What's your perspective? Well, I mean, it's an American story. So I think this is, a, this is everyone's problem. I don't think it's, you know, one side or another side. This is an American problem. And I think there's a lot of things that a white person cannot understand 
um, about what what an African-American has gone through as experience or a prejudice on a daily life. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not our fight. And it doesn't mean we don't need to join this fight. I mean, my, my grandpa is Abraham Lincoln Collinsworth. Mm-hmm. That's his name. And, and, you know, his life's work was desegregating schools in the state of Florida as a principal, as a superintendent. Uh, my dad was in those schools. Uh, he was a student at those schools. And so he's daily trying to carry out the messages and apply change in real time. And then that only grows as he goes to college and as a college athlete. And then in the, in the NFL and in the NFL locker room as an NFL athlete. And so I think I was raised with the education about how bad it's been and how far we still have to go. Um, and I think it's clear that even now as we're in 2020 and, and you see things that are happening right now in, in the world today, that we still have so far to go. And I think it's almost mind boggling to me when I hear some of the stories from the 50s and the 60s. And don't get me wrong. We've come a long way from where it was. I mean, it was disturbingly bad. Um, but we still have so far to go. And I think just just remembering the history in times like this is so important. And I think the history is something that we're going to really outline as we go through this today. Yeah, I, I clipped off and there's so many stories out there about how crucial of a role sports has played and bringing some of these issues to the forefront, shining a light on them. It's also disappointing too, because you also see the numerous times that that has been done and has it affected change to the point that uh, that we thought it would. And I think uh, the answer to that question a lot of times is no. Corey, what you you played football in Notre Dame. Obviously, you're around your dad uh, a lot as uh, as he was uh, going through the NBA. What, what what unique perspectives did you have? What did you feel as a as a black athlete playing football, watching your dad play? Well, the the thing about sports is that it really is the great equalizer when you're on the field, right? When you're in between the lines. Mm-hmm. Those are just guys. Right? Those are your teammates. Those are your brothers. And, you know, I look at every one of my teammates from Notre Dame. doesn't matter what background or ethnicity they were. You know, they were my brothers. We would die for each other. Mm-hmm. But then it's weird because as soon as you get off the playing surface, that's when everything changes. And and it's fascinating just just hearing the old stories of the guys coming up, our, you know, our forefathers um, who played for the entertainment of others. And those fans were the ones who were racist and prejudiced against them. You know, so that's a whole different level of just patience. Like now we don't really see it at that level where, you know, you couldn't go eat at a restaurant after the game. Imagine being on the Boston Celtics team in the 50s and you go or in the 60s, you know, and you go to you play your game, you win them a championship and then you came and go eat at a restaurant afterwards like that level. I couldn't even imagine, but I never experienced yeah. anything like that. So me personally, um, and I didn't I didn't play sports in college or, or professionally, obviously, but I've been in sports broadcasting my, my whole life, and uh, I'm half Arab. My my father was was born in Qatar, off of Saudi Arabia. I've never been there. I really don't know him that much, and so I have the name and I have the skin color, and that's about it. For me personally, I feel like in my broadcasting career, and this is why it's so complex and it's all individual, I feel like there have been times where my name has helped me in my career. I feel like in in any type of media endeavor, people are looking for something a little different, something unique. And I think just by way of my skin color and my name is that it gave some people that opportunity to hire someone unique. And so that's why I think it's it's super complicated when you talk of privilege and who has the advantage and who has the disadvantage 
it can be so unique to each individual that it, we're not all the same. It's different for each and every one of us. And so I think that's just important, Jack, as, as you said, listening to the stories out there and trying to understand where, where other people are coming from. Yeah. And, and I think I think it takes you, you got to get off your ass a little bit and go educate yourself. And And if you don't feel like you understand the history of this stuff, go read. I mean, get, get on Google and spend 20 minutes and learn about the history. And it's, and, and I did that today, just, just specifically to the history of sport and going back to Jesse Owens. I mean, in the 1930s, uh, when Adolf Hitler saying white supremacy, the white supremacy race, uh, and Jesse Owens has to crack that. I mean, think about the 1930s, uh, Jackie Robinson coming again in the forties and the fifties. Uh, think about Bill Russell, uh, in the 50s and the 60s, putting everything on the line uh, in terms of his own fame, in terms of his own notoriety, uh, to go fight for things that were so much bigger than him that he understood. Jim Brown in the 1960s, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, in the 60s and in the 70s. Then you have Tommy Smith, uh, John Carlos in the 68 Olympic Games where they raised their fist, their yes. black glove fist into the air. Uh, and they were widely vilified criticized during that time but now 50 years later 50 plus years later it is seen as a defining moment in the civil rights movement um and so there, there's the picture right there um and i think that that brings into a new lens i mean because that specifically is during the national anthem right i mean that, that's a, that's seen as a time when it's a great uh american you want it you play you play now play the anthem of your country uh, I think it's it's really readjusted the lens in which we see the Colin Kaepernick protests. I mean, I don't I don't understand how you can realistically sit there and go, you know, be bothered by some of the things happening around the world right now. Some of the non-peaceful protests and in the same breath be against Colin Kaepernick in a peaceful protest mm -hmm. uh, as he tried to make the lives safer uh, for all Americans in the streets. Uh, his protests were against police brutality against unarmed black men in the streets. I mean, how is that so polarizing? Uh, and so I, I really think now in 2020, we were reexamining the Colin Kaepernick protest of 2016. And, and that raises some questions about what's happened over four years that's now readjusted that in people's minds. Um, and I, I think this thing, it, it just gives you some idea that over from 16 to 20, that there's been progress like that of how far we still need to go by the time we get to 2030, uh, if yeah. you will. Uh, and I think it's staggering. Yeah, I, I was there, Corey. I, I was there in San Francisco during uh, during this. I, I covered sports in the Bay Area for, for six years, and Colin Kaepernick was there. And he did not start mm -hmm. his career as an activist. He came uh, after a couple of years that he was implanted as the starter. Um, but it, it was, I can just say from, from experience, and, and the Bay Area is a very progressive liberal area, and so you'd think there would be right. more support. And there was a lot of support um, for, for him in, in the Bay Area. But I found it very difficult to cover it because, you know, in, in TV, and it's not something that we necessarily talk about all the time, but we are there for the customer and, and the customer was split. There was certainly people that we heard from that, that thought it was disrespectful to the flag and, and thought that the protest should be done in a, in a different way. And so it made it very difficult for us because at the end of the day, why does our opinion matter more than anyone else's opinion? Why should our opinion be broadcast louder and farther than someone who, who is at home that doesn't necessarily have that same platform? And so we, we, we found it, at least I found it tough in that situation, even though I supported Colin Kaepernick and and his protest and his his platform to 
to speak up uh, on something that he thought was very important to him, but it just shows how, how difficult it can be sometime to, to navigate those waters. And, and one thing I would like to, to bring up is um, Jack is right. In four years, a lot has happened, right? Think about the, the just in the past that was so controversial and uh, four years ago. And then now every company in the world basically is issuing statements saying we, we condemn this activity. This is wrong. And basically taking Colin Kaepernick's original you know, side. Right. Um, and just in four years, but at the same time too, it's question. It's so tough because in four years, nothing really has changed. You know, still innocent black men are still being um, targeted and, and murdered by our law officials. So that's that's what is so heartbreaking. And I think a lot of people are just frustrated because it's like, okay, well, we're we're having so much change on a social level, being able to talk about these issues, but mm -hmm. it's not translating. And one of the things that I learned from just being at Notre Dame was. When I was in student government, one thing was very clear to me, and it was that students have a one to four year window, right? Like you get on campus and you're like, this is wrong. I want to, I want to see it change in my time at Notre Dame. And then the university is looking at it from, they're like 200 years old. They're looking at it in 50, 100 year, 125 year plans. And they say, okay, we're going to get to that, but that's in our 25 year plan. Mm -hmm. And that is the difference is that there's two different um, timelines and that no one the reason why there's so much disconnect is because the timelines aren't matching up and people don't understand the other person's timeline. And I think that's what we need to understand is there's a American history timeline that is going very slow. And then there's our immediate timelines like we need to change now. And we need to make sure that those timelines are more aligned so we can actually see more change happen in four years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the change, the progress that we've seen over four years is huge. I, I just think we need to capture it and immediately turn it into action. Right now, because I've never felt more and more, you know, four years ago, it just felt like it was like a 50 50 split. It was like, how can we politicize this? How can we make it right and left? How can we make it black and white? How can we make it as polarizing as humanly possible? And right now, I feel like everybody's trying to get on one team. Um, and I think we need to grab that. <laughs> and I think we need to do what we can with that right now. Push that as far forward right now as humanly possible. So I would turn to you, Corey, who was president of our class at the University of Notre Dame. And I would say that if you have all of these people, white people, black people, Asian people, Hispanic people, everybody going right now, let's let's do something. What can we do? What is the best course of action we can take in this exact moment? Where do we start? Uh, what can we do? Uh, where do you think is the best place to go immediately, Corey? Having conversations like this, to be completely honest, and I know people really think, oh, that's not really doing anything. I would disagree. And I, and I said yep. this before, you never can underestimate the power of a one-on-one -on -one conversation because that's, you don't know if you're someone's first interaction, right? Like, and I was thinking about that today earlier. Like when I was growing up, I was one of four black kids in my entire high school and two mm -hmm. of them were my brothers. <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? Wow. So for, if you think about what that means, when every time you go to a sporting event, there's only two sets of black parents um, in the crowds at every sporting event. So for a lot of people, I was probably their first interaction with a black kid on mm -hmm. their team, a first black teammate. I was their first black classmate. And I mean, that's in 20, you know, that's in 2005 or whatever, you know, that's in 2005, 2006. Like this isn't that long ago. So the power of a one-on-one -on -one conversation, the power of a one-on-one -on -one interaction is so powerful because now you can help break down that prejudice moving forward. So I think that these conversations are so crucial that are happening in sports locker rooms around the country, you know, in coaching tables and, and uh, you know, in owners and GMs, like when they're sitting down and talking, how can we better serve our employees, our partners? 
Um, and then honestly, Jack, we're three months away or four months away from an election. So this will be the best chance. So you have conversations now, you talk about it, you understand the other viewpoint, you educate yourself. And then in November, you show up to the polls and you, you vote, particularly in the local and state elections, because that's where a lot of the change happens. And people, you know, they underestimate how uh, impactful they can be. Because think about this, Jack, a lot of the swing votes in a, in a local, like if you go to a city election, how, what is the margin of victory? Could be a couple thousand. Imagine if in Notre Dame, you just got four dorms and you just said, we're all going to go vote today. That's a couple thousand people right there. You could swing an entire election by just getting four dorms to go vote. That's crazy to think about, isn't it? Yep. Hey, uh, uh, Corey, and, and I, I, I apologize in advance if this is too personal, but um, I'm, I'm just curious about your your experience growing up with a, a father who was famous in the in the NBA. Did you ever feel like you had a difficult time connecting with other parts of the black community that your experience was so different than than other parts? And I talked about my own experience being different and our own individually is being very complex and it's very messy that sometimes it's hard to connect even with those that many people in the outside world would say, oh, it'd, it'd be easy for Corey to, to make friends. Well, I think that my experience, it's just been such a, a unique experience just because, you know, my dad is famous and we sure. we were able to go around the world and talk about basketball and sport. And we've had, like I said, the power of sport to open doors as far as just conversations. Um, I've been able to to listen to people that other people just haven't been able to listen to because they are basketball fans. So in that sense, I think it it's a very unique experience. Um, but I think that can only enrich my experience going forward because my number one thing is to listen, right? So I want to be, I'm just like everyone else right now. I'm listening to everyone talking and sharing their and pouring their experiences out. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out how the next opportunity I have to speak up, like right now on this podcast, how can I bring those experiences to the forefront? Yeah. So it, that answers your question. Sure. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we're, we're, this is a, a listening tour and I, and I hope that's the case because when I think about it and you see a lot of anger out there, you see a lot of anger from people from all different backgrounds. And what, what always strikes me about anger is that it's a representation of some sort of pain. There's, there's pain somewhere there. Mm -hmm. And I think if we could all be a little more empathetic in trying to find that pain uh, within that person, because I think a lot of times you see an angry, an angry person and it can be in any walks of life. It can be a, a far right supporter can be a far left supporter who's just angry at the world. If we can look past that anger and try to find where that pain is originating from. And I think that's a lot, what a lot of people want. They understanding. They, we, we want you to understand why we are angry, why we are in pain. And it starts with having a conversation and asking those questions and trying to, to figure it out. So I, I think you're right, Corey and Jack, it's just, it's a, it's a listening tour and it's a, we're trying to, understand each other just a little bit better yeah i mean yeah. i i can't agree with you more i think humanity isn't partisan <laughs> you know we're just people and I, I i think that being able to play sports has has really opened that up for me personally when you're sitting in a locker room and there's a kid you know from the midwest that you you have nothing in common other than your love than football love for football you know he might be white you might be black and your other teammate might be latino but guess what you all are in it for the same reasons. We all care about the same thing. We're all fighting for the same thing. And then that opens up the conversation to be like, hey, I wanna learn more about your black experience in South Texas. And I'm happy to share. I wanna learn more about what it was like growing up in the Midwest, you know? So sure. it's, that is that is the first step. And then 
that empathy then grows into action because of course you're going to fight for them. You know, like I would fight. And like I said, I would fight and die for any of my teammates because I know them, yeah. you know, I've had those conversations and I've listened to them. And I think Jack can, I mean, he was such a big part of the team too. Like he was always around the guys and he knew a lot of the guys on the team. Like he can probably speak to the bonds that you create are just so much more than, you know, than any type of boundaries can divide. Like these are people like human relationships. Yeah. Big part of the team overstatement of the absolute century. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were a big part of the team, Jack. Yeah, well, I guess that could be a big part. Uh, yeah, and I, I think I think for in large part it, it comes down to we need more black leaders. I mean, I, is that so hard to understand? I mean, I, I think a lot gets fixed with black leadership because uh, I think you need that message from the top, and I, I don't think there should be anywhere else to start but the NFL. But the National Football League, I mean, you look at 32 head coaching jobs and you're looking at that picture on the screen right there. 32 head coaching jobs and three black head coaches. 17 of the last 20 head coaching vacancies, they've gone to white candidates. I mean, that's 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 in a league where 70 percent, 70 percent of player rosters are African-Americans and you have three black head coaches. The NFL has two African-American general managers for 32 teams. So you have 64, right? 64 leadership positions. Five African-Americans that are leading. Yeah. 70%, 70% players and five. You have five African-American leaders. It's 8% leadership that's black. I mean, this is 2020. And so while we want to say that we've come a long way from the 50s and from the 60s, this is 2020. And we are talking about 8% leadership in one of the biggest organizations in our country, uh, one of the most popular for sure. And I think we have to start right there. I think if we're going to, if we're going to talk about problems, talk about fixing problems, we got to start right there with leadership. And this one's been looked past for far too long. Hundred percent, and and it's the the actionable. It's like we we've identified a problem. The NFL, to their credit, has tried to figure out and brainstorm ways to to fix this problem. This this uh yeah this vacuum in leadership from uh, from the black community in the NFL. You've had the Rooney Rule for years, and now you heard the idea floated around of possibly compensating teams with a third and fourth round pick. And when you talk about these incentives, it just it feels wrong. Right. It feels wrong. It feels like we should just understand the value of black leadership and move in that direction without having to be given the carrot of a third and a fourth round pick. But I think, Corey, what what happens too often and we've seen it throughout history here, it doesn't just happen. Right. It's as much as we want it to just happen and people to realize the value of having a black leader with a, a black team. It just has not happened. So as much as it's uneasy and we don't want to have that carrot have to be dangled to get us to progress. I, I don't know. Maybe sometimes that is the, the final straw that it takes to, to get us over the hump and realizing that, wow, we'd be a lot better off if there were a whole lot more black leaders in, in any organization, including the NFL. Yes. I, I think the key here is allyship, right? Because think about, you got to have an inside champion, right? For your cause. Um, and think about Jackie Robinson's situation, right? The Dodgers owner handpicked him. And said, look, we're going to do this hand in hand. We're going to do this together, right? And I know we're both going to experience a lot of flack for this. But I believe that it's time to, for a change. And I'm willing to put everything behind this. My reputation, my dollars. I'm going to give you the platform you need. But I need you not to fight. I need you not to react when fans throw racial slurs at you. I need you to be strong enough to endure it with patience 
and with determination and with that vision because this is going to change Major League Baseball. But it took the Dodgers owner coming out and saying that first. Yeah, that's the difference in, in the NFL is that I don't know if that's happening. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty obvious. I mean, you get back to leadership, the owners are white. I mean, it's how many how many black NFL owners do you see? Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of silence, right? Yep. And so you don't have a lot of people who are making the decision about who to hire as the head coach with any sense of diversity, and and that's a problem. And so at some point, I think it needs to even be fixed. While we're talking about fixing the coaching level. We need to fix the ownership level, too. Um, and, and so I think that's that's another phase uh, of this thing. But Rooney, uh, talking about Rooney, where the Rooney rule comes from, the longtime owner, the family that owned the Pittsburgh Steelers for a long time, you know, when they when Bill Cowher uh, was 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 no longer going to be the head coach, I, I don't think that there was even a consideration to hire anybody that was white. I think they said, we're going after a young, black, talented head coach that we are going to support in every single way and ensure that he has success. And we're going to give him time and we're going to give him resources. And we're going to help him in every single way. And guess what? Mike Tom was one of the greatest coaches in the history of the national football league. And that's how you do it. And so Rooney tried to lead by example. And he tried to get, get ahead of this thing and push this thing forward in hopes that the rest of the owners would do the same thing. And they have it. And so we need more people that look at the hiring process like Rooney did, where it was like, no, 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 no. We have seventy percent of the players in this league who are black. I, I want I want black leadership. It, it needs to happen like that, and it, it doesn't need to be incentivized. It needs to happen right here in the minds of the owners, and so far it hasn't. Yeah, I I I agree with that, and hopefully the the discussions over the past week and over the past years and over the past hundred years they accumulate and they grow and they build like a grain of sand on a beach. It starts with one grain of sand, and then eventually you have a have a whole beach and you have an ocean. So. Mm -hmm. that that's that's the hope and i think you you get some pushback because life is hard for a lot of people out there white black latino arab it's just that it's it, it's a difficult world that we live in and so you hear of okay the white privilege and you you've been privileged and and so you should have this sense of, of guilt and I, I there was someone that put it perfectly and i thought it was so well spoken is that you know he he was a white man who grew up in, in the projects, poor mother, single mother, had a stepdad halfway through and the stepdad was abusive. And he said, my life has not been easy. Where's, where's my privilege? Mm -hmm. um, and then he realized it and he said, it, my privilege is that, you know, it's not, doesn't mean my life has been easy. It, it can mean that your life has been hard, but it also means that your skin color didn't make it harder. And I thought that was so well put. Um, and it gives a perspective to a lot of people out there that, that there are people whose skin color makes their life harder. It doesn't mean that your life is easy. And so trying to right those wrongs and, and it's been 400 years in the making, it doesn't happen overnight, but you hope it's a, it's a wave that certainly takes over, over America at some point. And it starts, yes, exactly with, with leadership positions for, for people who have not been heard throughout the years to get, get their voice, uh, voice out there uh, in the forefront. And, and the same thing applies. So, sorry, Corey. I was just going to say the same thing applies like we're talking about with the NFL. I mean, the same thing applies with a police chief, with a governor. I mean, it, it needs to be local officials where it's not a bunch of white people. <laughs> I mean, that's how you get after these problems. We're talking about the problems of police brutality. Well, we need to increase the, the diversity of police forces then. We certainly need to increase the diversity of police leadership. 
We certainly need to increase the diversity of leadership that are above the police leadership. Uh, and so I, I think it, it all occurs like this. And um, and so far, it's just been such a slow. It's like we just think we're going to talk about it and tweet about it and Instagram about it for a seven day period. And then it goes on the shelf for another three years until some insane video comes up. And I would do it again. It's like we need to attack these problems proactively so that the next one never happens. Uh, and, and I've never seen us do that proactively in that way. And maybe if we are, it just hasn't been, uh, you know, o- overly effective yet. Because, I mean, what we're seeing, I mean, the, the last one with I Can't Breathe about ripped my heart out. And it, now we go with this one. And if you have a heart inside your chest uh, and you're going to sit there and watch George Floyd with a knee in his neck for nine minutes. I mean, for the last two minutes, he's not, you can't even move. He's sitting there on the ground, he can't move. He's still getting suffocated out. Uh, if you're going to say this is one bad cop in one bad moment, what about the other three cops? What do they yeah. represent? Yeah. And, and, and Jack, you mentioned that the, the, I can't breathe. And I was looking through, this is from the undefeated. Uh, I got a lot of these pictures from, and it, it just struck me. I was like, wow, this exact phrase was used in 2014 in an, in another situation that was very similar with, with LeBron James, Cleveland Cavaliers, there are players in the NBA that wore the shirt that I can't breathe. And so if there's not a greater illustration of we've been down this road before and we'll go down it again, unless something changes, it's, it's that right there. Yeah. And I think the, the thing that we're, we're seeing and like you guys both mentioned it before is this concept of um, you need a role model, right? You need examples. You need to be able to look young people need to see someone like them in the position, you know, in a leadership position so they can achieve that. And uh, without that there, it's very hard to think that you can do it. And so that's, that's the key. I think like Michael Jordan's the first, I think he's the only, I don't know if he's the first, but he's the, the only black owner in the NBA, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then like you said, that like there are no black NFL owners. So that's going to be very difficult for a lot of young people who say, I love sports. You know, I want to be an owner, but there's no one there. Now, the only person that they have to look up to is Michael Jordan. Uh, and it's just kind of like, man, like I wish there were more. I wish there were more opportunities. So that's going to be a key. Just there needs to be a path that's clearly established so people know that they can do it. Corey, I was going to ask you, because I mean, even even watching the doc, the documentary and they had the part where it was, you know, Michael Jordan said that white people buy shoes, too. Right. And there was an election going on in North Carolina that was a highly um oh, it, it was i think you said like republicans i think republicans and right, republicans republicans and choose yeah. to whatever the line was so. right the the, the 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 gist was that he wasn't willing to to be outwardly widely you know widely spoken outward about his feelings uh, about social justice right uh and and now you see the flip with lebron james widely accepted as as the best player in the nba today mm-hmm. who has been the loudest voice uh, on a lot of these topics what does that say about the shift in culture from Jordan's era to where we are now? Well, I think that even before Michael, you know, Jordan, there was always athletes willing to take stands. And like you said, like you, you mentioned most of them who had immense platforms and the opportunity to, to spread that message. However, now in social media, like LeBron doesn't need to go on the New York times or go on a talk show, um, in order to say that he has six, whatever, 60 or 30 million, he has millions of followers on Instagram that he could just tweet to. And that I think is the difference. Now we're seeing there aren't even sports happening really. You know what I'm saying? It's like a couple of leagues are even up and running right now, but athletes are still leading the charge. 
Like there's no there's no NBA games happening. <laughs> but you but we keep seeing how involved Malcolm Brogdon and Jalen Brown and Steven Jackson and Carlton Towns and LeBron James um in his canter, you know, like Lonnie Walker was cleaning up here in San Antonio. NBA players have proven that they are they don't even need basketball in order to show people that you know they have influence in the social sphere. And that's right. a very powerful shift compared to Michael Jordan, where obviously Michael Jordan was the biggest person in the world. But even in the documentary, he said, I wouldn't be able to sell shoes if my game didn't speak for itself. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, don't even, you don't even need that anymore. You don't even need to play, really, in order to say, look, like, this is what I stand for. And this is what I believe in and have people follow yeah. you because you're an NBA player and that's enough. And that's I a think, very, yeah. very powerful shift. Yeah. And I, and I think, too, when what we've seen in, in – again, speaking to individuals are are all complex and all all different, is that, you know, not everyone feels comfortable speaking up in, in this way. And and I think right. that's okay. And no one is uh, is required to do so. But I think what we're seeing in in this uh, in this time is that you are required to listen and you are required to try to understand. Do not feel guilty if you do not use your voice or your platform for speaking out. That is not a requirement. But what is a requirement is to not make things harder for those who are in pain and who are trying to get a message out. And I think that is a message that people can get behind because you're right. Michael Jordan did not feel comfortable in that situation. And not everyone, everyone will. LeBron James obviously does. And there are many, many other athletes who do. And so I would just hope that that people out there and, and you guys have shared your experiences on this podcast. And I think it's been re- really helpful just to hear your perspectives and, and you talk about it. And I hope the people watching on YouTube who have gotten to this part of the video have felt comfortable if they want to share their experiences and their thoughts and things they would like to share with uh with a wider community out there, because that's what it is. You're not required to talk, but you are required to listen um, right now. Any final thoughts, guys? Anything else you got to uh, want to get out? Yeah. Thank you for having the conversation. Yeah. I really appreciate you yeah. guys. Yeah. I mean, I think my closing thing would be, let's let's not let any sides develop here. Let's not let this thing become a, something where it divides or becomes, you know, politically split or it's, this, this needs to be something where you extend an olive branch. We need as many people on this American. This is an American fight. I mean, this is this is an American fight that has been going on for way, way too long. Uh, and the only way you beat this thing is by making it an American problem um, and, and extending the olive branch to as many people as we can possibly get to fight this, to fight injustice. Um, and I think right now, more than ever, more than ever in my lifetime, I know that I'm seeing that. Uh, but as much as we can moving forward, let's make it, let's make this inclusive, uh, make this fight inclusive uh, and not not divided in any way. Great words. Great words, Jack, Corey. Great talking to you uh, once again. We'll do it. Uh, we'll do it real soon. See you guys later.